Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we have another exciting episode for you today. You know, it's funny when I was doing the book tour for my last book, you know, and the subtitle has uh, why na- nationalism, populism, tribalism, and identity politics are destroying American democracy. When I did liberal talk radio, everyone was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we hear you on the nationalism and the populism and the tribalism. But what's so bad about identity politics? And when I would do right wing talk radio, you get the reverse. You get people saying, I hear you on the identity politics, but what's so bad about nationalism? And, um, but identity politics in my, to my mind is in many ways the sort of root of all of those things in a certain way. And that's why one of the reasons I am delighted to have in the studio, Mary Eberstadt whose new book, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, um, is just out. And before you even get started, I'll just say, I love the book. I wish, and I'm, I'm a little mad at Mary for not having written it a little earlier so I could have used some of it for my book, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. And Mary, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to ask you the greatest of all author book tour questions. What's your book about? <laughs> So it's no secret that identity politics is the signature politics of our time, right? It is ubiquitous now. And what people need to understand, first of all, is that this is a very new way of doing politics. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, there have always been identity politics. But that is not technically correct. This very specific grievance-driven narrative uh, in which we take our political direction from the aggrieved group that we identify with is something that starts in 1977 with a declaration by uh, radical African-American feminists. And all scholars date the birth of identity politics to that time. So what I wanted to do with the book is take a step back from the news cycle and ask the question, why is it that so many people don't seem to know who they are these days? Mm. Why is our world obsessed with identity? Because I believe that there are clear answers to this that have to do with the radically different ways that we live now than we lived uh, before the sexual revolution. And the book is about unpeeling that argument. Right. And so at the, and again, it's a, it's a really useful book. Um, 
at the center of your argument is the family, that essentially family structure, the way we raise children is, as you put it in your, you have a sort of a colloquy back and forth with, with Mark Lilla, a liberal who's written a good book on identity politics. A lot of the theories of identity politics don't address the demand side. Why is identity politics appealing? They address the supply side, which is the ideological arguments that support identity politics. So why don't you just sort of explain why is, well, actually, before we do that, why don't you just sort of give a, a good definition or the serviceable definition of what you mean by identity politics? I mean the idea that you take your political direction from the aggrieved group with which you most identify. And this is the kind of politics we see that is dividing us. This is the kind of politics that progressives have honed to perfection. It's easy to criticize that way of doing politics, but I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to understand it. So most critiques of identity politics are asking what they're doing to us. What I'm asking is something else, which is what does this tell us? What does it tell us that so many people are in a crisis about their identities? Well, let's Go back to how people used to build their identities. If you were to ask people pre-1960 to identify themselves, I think most people would have said, first, uh, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a cousin, I'm an aunt, I'm an uncle. They would have defined themselves relationally by virtue of their position in the family. Relatedness is the primary way of constructing identity, and, and we see this even now, say, in the craze for 23andMe and other technologies that tell us who we are related to. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be an enduring human trait. But the problem is that after the sexual revolution, it became much more complicated to construct identity that way. Are you my brother? Are you my half-brother? Are you my stepbrother? Oh, maybe you were my stepsister, but then your dad and my mom split up. Are you still my sister? Is that my uncle over there? Well, it depends on whether he was my biological uncle or maybe he was my aunt's husband several husbands ago. All of these kinds of confusion have been introduced into, into humanity. Uh, and they're not the only kinds. If you look at all of the phenomena following the sexual revolution, Divorce, fatherlessness, a rise in cohabitation, the shrinking of the family, which I think is very important to this argument, by which I mean not only the nuclear family, but the extended family. You see that supplying the answer to your identity by reference to your familial relations is much more attenuated and complicated than it used to be. So, boom, there goes one way of answering the question, who am I? There are also parallel developments that are very important to religious believers, of course. The answer to the question, who am I, is I'm a child of God, mm -hmm. and I am in figurative familial community with my brothers and sisters in my religion. Well, we all know that organized religion um, is diminishing across the Western world, and being religiously illiterate means that a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, don't have access to that way of explaining who they are either. So here we have these two major planks of human identity um, that are farther from reach than they used to be for, for many. And I think this is where that crisis of identity is coming from. Yeah, and it's, it's, I, I often will trace it. I mean, I think family is the most important. Family is the hamster that spins the wheel that drives a lot of the institution, that powers a lot of the institutions in society. Um, Charles Murray makes this point 
often about how there are very few bachelors who coach Little League because the reality is that most men who engage in their communities are doing it because their wives tell them to. And if you have a if you have a community with a lot of single moms, you just simply don't have essentially the surplus labor that allows moms to do all the volunteer stuff that they once did and also allows dads to do the volunteer stuff that they once did. And you get this deracinating or this atomizing of, of community. And I think there's a, a lot to that, but I, I just want to, I want to dwell on the thesis for a bit more before I get to my sort of pushback on a little of this. And again, it's, it's pushback from a lot of agreement. You, you refer to something called the great scattering. Um, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that the trends that we were just talking about, let's leave aside their moral content. We're talking about divorce, fatherlessness, abortion, the shrinking of the family, the fracturing of the family. Every one of these post-1960s trends has the same effect. It subtracts the number of people in the lives of individuals who can be expected to have your back, basically. Mm -hmm. Fewer cousins... Fewer aunts and uncles, fewer siblings, fewer people with siblings of the opposite sex, etc. All of these things mean that there are fewer people in your life mm-hmm. who can be expected to help you construct your identity. And what I mean by the great scattering is the net effect of all of those trends working together. So one of the things I really liked about the book, in part because I'm a crazy dog person, um, <laughs> animal person, and um, you have this discussion of what you call the myth of the lone wolf. And something I did not actually realize is that wolf packs basically are essentially nuclear families with a few add-ons from time to time. And that, as you put it, a lot of the problems that you get with the behavior that we ascribe to a lone wolf or angry elephants is when you take them out of their family setting, which gets to this point that an argument I, I sort of want to develop a little bit. You make the case that a lot of the problems that we have that we associate with identity politics are in fact pre-political and are better understood through anthropology than they are necessarily through the, some ideological prism. Can you sort of expand on that just for a bit? Yeah. Well, I am also a crazy dog and animal person. And that's why I was aware of this research that I include in the book, because I think it's it's spot on. So during the last 10 years, especially, and with the aid of things like MRIs on animals, uh, scientists have learned many things that have come to surprise them. Uh, but th- mainly what they've learned is that animals are intensely familial creatures. And I open the book with that story about the lone wolf because it turns out now that there is no such thing as the lone wolf. The wolves live in communities of mom, dad. They live like Ozzie and Harriet. Mm-hmm. And so do the coyotes and so do the elephants and so do uh, many other animals. And I'm not only talking about mammals. Uh, now, in the book, I explain why animal life seems to be constructed this way, because this is better for the survivability of animals, etc. But what's really interesting is that the same people who seem most concerned with animal welfare this way, the, the people who are responsible for not for the fact that elephants won't be found in circuses anymore, for instance, which is something I applaud, mm-hmm. those people are making their case based on the suffering that animals endure when they are taken away from their extended families. Mm-hmm. And this, at the same time, they don't seem able to apply that insight to humanity. Mm-hmm. If we were running experiments on other species the way we are running this post-sexual revolution experiment on ourselves, there would be outcry. Uh, and 
in the specific case of elephants, some of the things that people say about elephants are things that directly apply to us. There's talk of, you know, elephant crisis, elephant breakdown. Uh, and I get into some examples of how young male elephants rampage uh, in the absence of an older male. Mm. And park rangers have found that the way to keep them in line is just to plop an older male into the situation whereupon the familial uh, order reasserts itself. Mm -hmm. So what's most interesting of all, I think, is that animals living in families don't have dominance fights. Dominance fights are things that happen when animals are living in forced packs, mm -hmm. uh, that is, unnatural situations for their kind. And in the rancor and divisiveness of our current politics, that's what I hear. I hear dominance struggles by people who have been uprooted from familial order. To name just one example, and this is not in the book, but think about the, the rancor that attended the, the Women's March on Washington mm -hmm. and how some people were told they couldn't be part of it and then other people struggled to be the leaders of it. That was a dominance fight mm -hmm. by people who were taking essentially familial passions tribal passions to politics. And I think it leaves us in a unique situation, Jonah, because I do think that a lot of what drives politics now is something pre-political, something primordial, mm -hmm. which is the need to attach to a group of some kind in this familial way in the absence of the old ways of attachment. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And again, I mean, I, I think, again, I think the problem stems not just from the breakdown of the family. The breakdown of the family is the primary driver of it, but it also has to do with the knock-on effects of the breakdown of local communities and the institutions that once could sometimes pick up some of the slack for bad families. You know, churches used to be more engaged in people's lives. Neighborliness is on way down. You cite Robert Putnam and all of this. And it's, so it's funny. I was talking to Chuck Todd about some something about politics recently, and he pointed out something that hadn't that kind of crystallized a point that I've been thinking about for a long time was that Tip O'Neill is now wrong, right? Tip O'Neill famously said, "All politics is local," and now all politics <clears throat> is national because we are having these arguments about we're taking these sort of localist and familial kind of you know instincts and applying them to an entire continental nation, and it becomes this dominant struggle. I mean, Twitter is all about fights about how other people are living wrong, you know, and um, uh, my friend Megan McCarroll wrote this great piece about how social media can best be understood as a kind of toxic form of small town where everybody's in everybody's business, but in the worst way, not in the best way. And I think, and so this is one of the reasons why I, I, I like the book so much is that this is a big argument of mine is that, that I, I tend to see more and more ideological arguments as post hoc rationalizations of pre-rational instinctual things. And so like the uh, when I was listening to you talk and you mentioned in the book, Patrick Moynihan's famous or as you say, famous and infamous uh, report on the Negro family. He points out that across all of human history, we've known that if you don't socialize young men properly, they turn into gangs. Right. That is that is a natural form of human organization for young men that if you don't socialize them properly, they will fall back into, whether it's on the streets of ancient Rome or it's Crips and Bloods or if it's the Irish gangs of Hell's Kitchen or it's in the sort of literary sense into things like uh, uh, Lord of the Flies. That's, you know, and and so I I 
that's where I think you've got it exactly right. I guess where I want to push back just a little bit is when you set up the thing with the animals in the beginning, which I thought was great, and and you talk about how this stems from family breakdown, which I think is correct. I just don't see – I think the term identity politics, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't find any proof that you're wrong, that the term identity politics in our politics begins when you say it does. But it seems to me that the underlying phenomenon of identity <coughs> politics is part of the human conditioning. And we can find examples of it going back way back in the past. And it's another one of these things like young, tough, young, men, young, poorly socialized men falling into street gangs. It is something that we fall into when you have breakdowns in the, in the civic order, in the family or in local institutions. Do you really think that identity politics, qua identity politics, did not exist prior to the feminist or the 1960s revolution? I think human beings are teleological creatures and they seek meaning and they seek in particular meaning about themselves. And I agree with you that that's a constant. And if they are deprived of the most obvious ways of understanding who they are, then they will go seek at some other level. Right. And I think the reason for the embrace of identity politics is that a lot of people can only find themselves and their substitute family in these groups, right? many of them virtual. And my point is that the search is understandable, but these are poor substitutes for the real thing. Yeah, and I agree with you that on that entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're persuasive on that. I mean, it was like pushing on an open door with me, cause I, <laughs> but I, I agree with that entirely. But my, my point is, is like, for example, I often say that aristocracy is the oldest form of identity politics. Aristocracy says that simply by, by virtue of an accident of birth, some people who are born into one category of human are better than people born into another category of human. That's a lot of what identity politics is today, is that simply by virtue of the, some abstract category like the color of your skin or your gender or your sex or, or, or your disability, you can go down a long list, that you are more deserving or less deserving than other people and that the rules should apply differently to you than they do to other people. How is, how is, you know, how am I wrong about that? I mean, how is, how is the identity politics of today? I understand that the ideological construct is novel, but this underlying human desire to otherize the enemy seems like part of the human condition going all the way back to the beginning. Well, sure. But your example is instructive. So in a more codified social order, like an aristocracy, that's one more way of answering the question, who am I? I'm born into this class. Mm -hmm. It could be that we feel the effects of identity politics all the more intensely because we are essentially a, a meritocracy, a republic in which the class-based answers to that question are also a little harder to come by. Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. how I would try to square that circle. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, okay, I want to ask, so what do we do about all this? But, you know, there's another point that I think is worth making is that one of and I know that studies from sociologists demonstrate this, that one of the most enduring forms of identity is actually cuisine and what we eat. And that's why I want to talk to you about DoorDash. Uh, we're happy to be sponsored this week by DoorDash. And we still have the promo code for this one is still remnant. I just want to let you know that I wasn't reading it wrong and I will not be dropping F-bombs when I encounter that part like I did in the infamous Iowa episode. But... Uh, uh, we're delighted that uh, DoorDash is sticking with us. 
you know, are you, are you crushing it at work? Laser focus on beating that boss level? That doesn't mean you shouldn't eat. DoorDash can help you get your next meal from your favorite restaurant in minutes. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 330 cities, so you might find a new favorite too. And with door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada... Order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Now, this is one of these products that I can actually test. We use quite a bit at home. It's uh, it's easy. It's simple. Uh, we actually use it on the road sometimes, too, when we're staying someplace and we've been driving all day and we don't want to like go searching around for something to eat. We want to sort of relax in a hotel. We often use DoorDash. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when they download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code REMNANT. Don't forget, that's promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, for $5 off your first order from DoorDash, and we thank DoorDash for their support. Now, so what the hell do we do about it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's what everybody wants to know. So my fundamental point here is that it's like any other malady, right? If we don't get the diagnosis right, Mm -hmm. we can't treat the disease. Mm -hmm. And the problem right now is that there are a lot of proposed notions about what the problem out there is, and they're they're wrong. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if we think the problem is, quote, the patriarchy, right, and we try to address that, we are not going to um, solve the problem of identity politics. Or if we think the problem is the oppressive gender binary, mm-hmm. we can go at that all we want, and that's not going to make people better either. There is a lot of suffering out there that I think emanates from this kind of politics, and you can see it in the demonstrations, and you can hear it in the way that people talk. And that suffering is coming from a really fundamental place. So what I'm trying to do is hold up a mirror to all that and point out where it's coming from, because there isn't really any reason to think that the sexual revolution is the one and only development in human history that's off-limits. Right. Right. Like, as in Mark Lilla is one of the three commentators in the book. He's a a liberal and a scholar and the most prominent liberal critic of identity politics. And his response to the argument is essentially, get over it. Like, conservatives or traditionalists have to get over it. The sexual revolution's here to stay. It's off limits for reconsideration. I understand that argument. That is a kind of very familiar Hegelian argument in which, like, capital H history is writing a script that human beings can't touch. But we can think of a lot of movements in history that were eventually countermanded because they created reformers. For example, the gin alleys of London, Mm pre-Victorian era. There was a terrible problem with alcohol. Mothers were abandoning their babies. And there was general mayhem. Um, The Victorians decided to put an end to this and... 
ended up doing so. There is no more problem with gin as a mass phenomenon in in England, to my knowledge. So that's an example of where society renormed in the face of clear harm. Mm-hmm. And another example that I think is very useful is tobacco smoking. Mm-hmm. So 50 years ago, it was everywhere. I can even remember as a little girl that you could smoke in hospital rooms as long as there wasn't an oxygen tank nearby. My mom talks about how they told her, look, we just ask that if you don't smoke while while nursing the newborn. <laughs> but she had an ashtray next to her bed when I was born. You know, I mean, yeah, unimaginable today. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And the question is, why is it unimaginable? Well, because of 50 plus years of dedicated research and nagging and insisting on the harms of this substance, such that there was a massive social turnaround. I mean, most smokers now don't like the idea of smoking indoors. That's mm-hmm. astonishing. Yeah. And so there we have an example of how, you know, yes, man is a social animal, but he's also a rational animal. And if you hit him over the head enough with with data, uh, eventually you can affect a turnaround. And that's what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I I wish I could share, share your unbridled enthusiasm for, for um, or optimism. Um, I guess it's bridled optimism. It's not unbridled. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, one of the things that I, one of the things I like about the way you put it is, is demand side rather than supply side. Cause one of the arguments I often make, um, the, I got a lot out of Jonathan Haidt and, um, and, you know, all of this stuff about how we are raising kids to be, you know, he doesn't like to use the word snowflake, but, you know, raising kids to be, Risk averse, um, fragile, um, brittle, and and you know political correctness has been around for a very long time, depending on how you define it. Um, but there have been left wing academics who have wanted to you know capture the youth and going back to Plato. And the the reason why the PC stuff today works so much better is that this is the generation that those academics have been waiting for. When you raise kids that in an environment where um, there's particularly elite kids, which is, you know, a part of the problem, there is uh, the worst thing you can do is be a bully. I'm not not in favor of bullying, but um, basically all interpersonal conflicts end up being adjudicated by a third party adult intercessor, right, who comes in and says, you kids play nice. Um, self-esteem matters more than anything else. Uh Feelings of safety and security matter more than anything else. And you raise kids to think in those terms where they don't go out and they don't develop the sort of scar tissue or emotional scar tissue or immunity in the sort of like the way we do with allergies. And then you send them off to college. And then all of a sudden, these kids do think that words hurt, right? And they do want trigger warnings and they do want to feel like speech is threatening. And that is a really useful clay for uh, for generations of left-wing professors who didn't have that. You know, the guys who went to college on the GI Bill, if you told them, you know, that words are violence, they would tell you stories about the Battle of the Bulge and laugh you out of the room. But now you have these kids who are raised in a certain way. And so I think the demand side thing is really an important part of this. But one of the points that Mark Lilla makes is that, that in his response to yours, is that you don't give enough credence to the idea that part of the problem is capitalism itself. And 
since I am very much on the David French side of the French Amari Wars these <laughs> days, um, I want to be careful about this. But I do believe that Schumpeter was on to something when he talked about how the relentless efficiency of capitalism in the market tends to erode good institutions as easily as bad institutions. Are, do you worry about the role that the market plays in all of these things? Is there is there some sort of grand bargain between sort of the Mark Lillas and the Mary Aberstats in figuring out a way to sort of bridge these concerns on both sides? Yeah, of course, Schumpeter. Of course, Schumpeter had a point. And I do think there's room. I think there's a very exciting moment politically for sane people, for people who are not part of collective delusion. Mm-hmm. The remnant, in other words. The, the remnant. <laughs> the remnant. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think there could be some reaching across the aisle on the part of reasonable people. And I think in particular, uh, if I want to think of a phenomenon that open markets um, have have thrown at us to our detriment, of course, it's pornography mm-hmm. is ubiquitous, too. You know, and I think the time has come for maybe feminism to step in and have a voice on that. And again, a coalition of the reasonable is possible. But I would like to get back to your point about Jonathan Haidt and oh, sure. the Absolutely. coddling theory. Go wherever you want to go. Yeah, the coddling theory. Um, I think it's true that parents protect in this um, perhaps self-defeating way. But Jonah, I would say... Let's ask why they're doing that. Mm -hmm. Where is that coming from? Where is that protectiveness coming from? And what I really believe is that we have so disturbed the human ecosystem that we are now seeing system-wide effects. And the analogy I would use here is it's like a factory dumping toxins into a pond. Mm -hmm. And... Sooner or later, some of the fish get really messed up. We don't know why some fish get messed up and other ones don't, but something happens in the ecosystem that poses a threat to the fish. I think what we've done to ourselves since the sexual revolution and, you know, the related loss of religion Mm -hmm. and loss of family, uh, I I think that people sense this. I think it's where some of the anxiety is coming from out there. You know, the the rise in psychiatric problems, especially among young people. This is subliminal stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's not the sort of thing that I can demonstrate with data. But I do believe that somewhere deep down, humanity suspects that something has gone really wrong. And Mm -hmm. this is part of where the apocalyptic tone in politics is coming from as well. Climate change... And all of the apocalypticism, apocalypticism, apocalypticism. <laughs> close enough, it works for me. Um, <laughs> that surrounds it is to me, uh, it's a stand-in for something else, mm-hmm. which is this sense that something about our world is ending, something about our world is in a lot of trouble. I'm not saying climate change isn't real. What I'm saying is, if you want to be apocalyptic, look at we've done what we've done to ourselves with these other changes. Mm-hmm. So I think this free-floating. Anxiety uh, itself is telling us something, and that, I suspect, is where the overprotection of the young is coming from, is that at some really deep level, humanity, and especially parents, realize that it's a more threatening world for those kids out there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I take your point, but, you know, I grew up in New York City in the 1970s. My mom would tell me, come back when the streetlights come on sometimes. 
New York City in the 1970s was much more dangerous and horrible place than New York City in the 20 teens in in material terms, right? And and like just so Jonathan Haidt, he says that a lot of this began with the uh, Aton Pates thing where the, mm-hmm. he was kidnapped and this kid was abducted. It was horrible. He was the first milk crate kid, milk carton kid. And there is a certain sense. It's sort of like, you know, the there were a couple sensational stories that led to the almost eradication of the practice of hitchhiking in this country, even though the vast majority of hitchhikers were fine. Um, but there was just these few handful of sensational stories that scared the hell out of people and it all stopped. I, I, I think you're right. There's an enormous amount of anxiety out there. I also think that the demands of the meritocracy, um, which I'm, I'm, I just talked to Christine Rosen about this on an earlier episode. I'm very much in favor of merit. I'm much more skeptical of the meritocracy because I kind of think it's being gamed, you know, like the, the varsity blues thing. You know, mm-hmm. there are lots of, in a very Schumpeterian way, there's a new class that is manipulating these things. And the demands of the, the, the supposed meritocracy that says if you check all of these boxes and do what is expected of you from K through 12 through college, your life will be taken care of. They're demanding obeisance to wokeness and to all sorts of progressive norms that parents just think they have to go along with. And I think as is, I absolutely agree that parents are more concerned these days for all sorts of rational and irrational reasons. But I also think that they're also just um, convinced that there is this one illuminated path to a successful child. And so they have to go along to get along the stuff. I mean, I know you raise kids in the Washington DC area. One of my great peeves is, Whenever I go speak to conservative audiences, they'll say, you know, how are we going to fix this political correctness in the public schools? The public schools are so bad. Public schools are teaching our kids anti-American and stuff. It's like, have you looked at the private schools? (laughs) Um, There are a lot of elite schools that are worse on a lot of these things. And there are a lot of parents who I know disagree with this stuff, but they tell their kids shut up and go along because this is what the political order demands of them. And I think that's a real problem, too. Am I just rambling here? I mean... No, I think we're on parallel tracks. Uh, but what I'm trying to get at is where this anxiety comes from. In saying that kids are less safe now, I don't mean that in a literal sense. I don't mean like violent crime is higher or anything like that. I mean that the way we, we are living, and I say we because everybody's implicated. We're social animals. Mm-hmm. We might think we're really different from one another, but we pick up on cues all the time. Uh, and respond to other people, others of our kind. Um, when I say, yeah, kids are less protected in a different sense. They're less protected in the sense that they are now more likely to grow up uh, and die lonely, for example. There are a lot of pages in the book on loneliness studies for the good reason that I think they're among the most amazing documents of our time across the Western world. Uh, people are dying alone. And loneliness is said to be an epidemic. For a while, it was thought that this was just uh, about old people, mm-hmm. uh, the people who were young when the sexual revolution dawned. Um, but now we know that there's also loneliness at the other end of Time's telescope. So those kind of threats to well-being and human flourishing are harder to quantify, perhaps, but they're no less real for that. And I think that's the kind of thing that parents are responding to is the sense that Something's gone wrong in the world. We don't know what it is, but it makes us anxious for our kids. I asked this of a colleague 
uh, Lyman Stone, who was on a recent episode. Whenever I talk, I mean, to people like you, other people I basically agree with about the the the, the diagnosis of modernity right now, or this part of modernity. Going back to Judge Bork and Irving Kristol, there was always, well, you know, the way out is through another great awakening, right? And we need, everyone needs to, if we could find religion, we'd be okay. I'm sure that before every great awakening, the idea of a great awakening seems really unlikely. Um, getting to your teleology point, because I, I agree, nothing is foreordained. And, but is there a way, do you think, if you had to guess, is there a way out of this that doesn't involve a sort of reorienting our metaphysics? Um, or our theology in a in a profound way. You can go. All- I'd settle for a small awakening. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a big one. Uh, the meager uh, awakening. <laughs> well, if we are to ameliorate the situation, that's where that's the direction mm-hmm. uh, where help will have to come from. Because again, part of my point is that. What some of the things we think are political out there are actually anthropological in nature. Right. Um, so we can't rescue ourselves with politics. I'm sure we could make things worse with politics, mm-hmm. and I can think of uh, leaders I'd rather not <laughs> see <laughs> see out there uh, because they will play to identity politics, for instance, and mm-hmm. increase the divisiveness out there. But fundamentally, I think the answer is going to have to come from some kind of moral renewal. Right. Which is. I mean, I, I, the the whole war on gin in England was in part from a religious revival, wasn't it? I mean, it, Wesleyanism. Yeah, um, and I think isn't that when the Salvation Army really gets going? I can't remember. Um, something like that. Um, so, something that is a major, obviously, as we've already discussed, major part of this book, but also a major part of like your writing going a long time back is the. Is feminism is, is the the sexual revolution and its consequences isn't you know it, it always seemed to me that that you know the Christina Hofstammers of the world um, they always were on very solid ground by basically just making the case that that classical liberalism needs to include women too and that once you do that get out of the just get out of the way of everything else the arguments about essentialism and and the identity politics stuff they just get us off the rails all the way do you think that the, just the term feminism is has outlived its utility is there a way to define it in a way that makes it attractive to young people that it's also healthy um or should we just say good you know goodbye to all that well here's what i think and I may be in a minority of one here because I've never seen anyone else see it this way, but I've come to the conclusion that feminism is misunderstood, including by feminists. It is not a juggernaut of uh, liberationists who are happily playing offense out there in the public square. Mm -hmm. It's something very different. Uh, If you look at the face of modern feminism, say the Women's March on Washington, Mm. pink hats, and... You see the anger, you see the belligerence, you see the coarse language, you hear the coarse language. I think all of that is coming from a deep place. I think feminism is an unconscious, self-protective response to the disappearance in the lives of many women of reliable men. Mm -hmm. And they could be men as romantic partners. As we know, it's harder to find a husband and family these days. Or men 
just literally brothers, cousins, fathers, uncles. And I was especially struck by this, Jonah, watching the Me Too movement unfold mm. and reading a lot of those stories because what was striking, it's like the Hound of the Baskervilles. What wasn't there? What wasn't making noise? And what was absent from these stories almost entirely was a father, a brother, a male relative playing some kind of interventionary role mm -hmm. with predatory men. Mm -hmm. There were a few mentions of boyfriends doing this, but there were very few. And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Why aren't these men involved in this? Well, it's because in a lot of cases, women don't have men like that in their lives anymore. Again, going back to the subtraction of humanity through abortion, uh, fatherlessness, uh, small families, etc. So I feel for the feminists in a funny way, mm -hmm. um, as much as I oppose with my whole being any kind of quasi-religion that is centered around abortion up until the moment of birth. Uh, but what I feel for is the, the vibe that they give off about being unprotected and unaccompanied by men. Mm -hmm. They don't understand it that way, obviously. But, you know, 50 years into modern feminism, that's that's what it results in. Yeah, I mean, two thoughts. One, it reminds me very much of the life of Julia, right? Where the famous creepy PowerPoint presentation where you have this woman who gets cradle to grave, literally cradle to grave protection from the state under President Obama. And nowhere in her life story are there men or family of any kind who are helping her in any way. It's, it's, it's the, it's the hyper individual woman in the state and no other mediating institutions, no family, no parents, nothing like that. Even there, she has a son, no mention of a husband or a father for the son. And the son disappears when she's 18 and never comes back. And, um, and so I, I, I but I take your point. I mean, but that's, that's in some ways a profound indictment of men, too, because there are, as a numerical thing, men in these situations around, and they are not intervening. You know, maybe it's not brothers or fathers who are intervening for these young women, but these are young women in the workplace. There just aren't men who feel as I don't want to call it chivalry, but a chivalric or just a masculine, noble desire to say, hey, cut it out, leave her alone. I mean, we have a man problem in this country, too. Yeah, I don't think the sexual revolution has been a great help to either side. Um, you know, Lionel Tiger, the sociologist, mm -hmm. wrote a prophetic book, I think it's about 19 years ago, called The Decline of Males. Mm -hmm. And part of his point was that as of the right to abortion being something that a woman could exercise in solitude, uh, there was no more role for men to mm -hmm. uh, to <laughs> to be fathers, to be companions of a steady nature. Uh, women now controlled the means of reproduction entirely. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, it's funny. Someone said to me recently that you know the the way to think about it is is that Karl Marx and the Marxists thought that the industrialists and the economic ruling classes had all the power. And so they that's who the Marxists all wanted to topple. And then the post-60s crowd realized that the real power lay in defining 
family, sex, and gender, and that's where and that's what they wanted to topple. It's a little conspiratorial, but there's there's an interesting truth in there somewhere. And um, insofar as like the family is a more important institution than whoever the Fortune 500 are in terms of what the the shape of our society is going to look like. Um, but um, but it does seem to me that that you know there is something about um there's there's a cs lewisian for want of a better adjectival form of cs lewis problem of men without chests that we have in our society today where um because the assumption is is that women and rightly so by my lights are fully realized human beings who have autonomy and all of that as a legal matter and as a social matter that therefore there is no role for men to um, do anything that might smack of, you know, condescension or male privilege or anything like that. And I don't want to get all Jordan Peterson on this, but there is, I think that, that there, particularly with the changing nature of labor and work, where a strong back and a good work ethic no longer are a guaranteed path to the middle class, there are a lot of men out there who really are adrift. Women, according to the data, are thriving much better than men are in our society these days because no one's at least at least there's a conversation about what a woman should want in life and all of that kind of thing it is much more difficult to talk about what young men should want out of life other than to be woke and considerate and and have wear their pajamas while they talk about obamacare or something like that yeah again i think this is where 50 plus years of fatherlessness have gotten Mm. us and as I make very clear in the book, I'm not talking about any single individual decision. I'm not being judgy. I'm talking about the collective impact of that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe me, ask Tupac Shakur. <laughs> he wrote a song about it, about what it was like not to have a male role model and how he had to play catch by himself, which I thought was a really shocking image, yeah. um, really poignant. So what do we expect when we have so many young men who have not been socialized by an older male. Of mm-hmm. course they're adrift. Yeah. There was a great piece in the Washington Post a few years ago about why baseball, well, black, why African Americans are playing less baseball. And, um, uh, as of like three years ago, black participation in Major League Baseball was the lowest it had been in 30 years or something like that. And, uh, I can't remember the, it was Cortland Malloy, but the columnist, went around and asked a whole bunch of black Little League baseball coaches around D.C. what their theories were. And they had a lot of different theories. You know, there's more flash to football. There's more money, all that kind of stuff. The It's easier to play some of these other you – know, anyway, there were a lot of theories. But one theory that really rang out was one coach said it's the lack of fathers. It's that you learn football and basketball from your peers, you go down to the playground and you play pickup games with your peers and they teach you how to do it. Baseball is essentially witchcraft, right? I mean, it's all these crazy numbers and you have to like the stats and it's got this slower pace and you have to like want to be like your dad and sit on the couch and watch the game and, and sort of have him sort of ensorcel you into the lore of it. And then you got to go in the backyard and play catch with your dad. And if you don't have dads transmitting the culture of baseball, you just don't get an affinity for baseball. And I think, you know, that's to me, that was a great little metaphor about like all sorts of things in life. Um, 
I would go on about Friedrich Hayek's theory of the microcosm and the macrocosm, but my <laughs> listeners have heard me do that a lot because it's such a wacky podcast. Um, Mary, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, everyone should get the book. It is Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And I should point out, um, just for the sake of collegiality, uh, uh, Remnant Podcast guest Nick Eberstadt made the um, incandescently wise decision to marry Mary X number of years ago. And uh, we're all big fans of the Eberstats here. So thanks for coming. Thank you, Jonah. Okay, so uh, Mary has left uh, the building. No, she hasn't. She's still here. That's a good point. Mary's left the studio, mm-hmm. Mr. Pedent. Um, you've, you've, you've clarified that in the past. Have I? Yeah, that when people leave the studio but not the building. Uh-huh. Just trying to keep you consistent. I appreciate that. That's, that's, that's why you get the big bucks. Um, what'd you think of all that? Uh, I mean, this is a guest about, uh, with whom you could have discussed any manner of things. Uh, this was a fruitful avenue of discussion. Uh, but I, I would, I would like for her to return so that you can discuss the priest crisis in the Catholic Church, uh-huh. in which she has written many things. Uh, the Ritalin crisis, or crisis, I don't know if crisis is the right word, the Ritalin Epidemic? overprescription uh-huh. ep- ep- crisis, which I I had vague notions of being obviously opposed to Ritalin, especially as prescribed to uh, young boys who in the past would have uh, been considered just like energetic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then she, I found somehow found what she had written about it, and I was like, oh yeah. So it turns out my vague notions are actually backed up by science. Yeah, that's always fun when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things you could talk to her about, but this was a good one, um, and I'm glad that she was here. Yeah. So I try to get at look. I, I'm a huge fan of Mary's. She's also just such a nice lady. Oh, this is the first, the second. Married couple to appear on the remnant, the Eberstats, and separate episodes. But you, you, you were the first. Yes. Fun remnant trivia for the world. Yes. Well, see, that would be the when we get more married uh, sets on here, you could stump people with the trivia question because people wouldn't think of me as married. No, as a guest, right? <laughs> oh. So like I'm in a different category, and that's how you would stump people. You know, it's sort of like um, <clears throat> I don't know um. Arguments about how many spinoffs Happy Days had. Um, oh, hmm, hmm. That's that's like an angels on the head of a pin for for Gen Xers. Um, a little bit. Uh, Mork and Mindy, Joni loves Chachi, Laverne and Shirley. Um, I'm forgetting one. Um, John Podoritz will remind you what it is. Yeah, that's right. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> No, on, on this identity politics thing, I didn't want to like belabor a point <clears throat> because her book is so centrally about the breakdown of the family as this, as the, the, the Rosetta Stone to understand all of these things. And I guess my position is, I mean, again, the book is really worth reading. It's very accessible, but the, I, I agree with her analysis. I just think it's a, Necessary but not sufficient part of the explanation in the, insofar as the family is at the center of all these other institutions, but there are these other things going on that the breakdown of the family makes things worse. 
in, as part of the process. I mean, it's sort of like that Orwell quote I love about how you can feel yourself a failure and take to drink and become all the more of a failure because you drink. The family breakdown part of it um, makes a lot of these other things worse. Um, but this thing, which she based, I think her explanation was fine. Um, um, but in the book, it felt like she was holding tight to this idea that at any politics is this truly new thing under the sun. And I just, I just don't think that's the case. But the thing I always <clears throat> point out, which a lot of people get mad at me about, because they have different notions of um, what the essay means. But, you know, George Orwell wrote this great essay, um, Notes on Nationalism. It's probably my second or probably my second favorite Orwell essay. Um, and uh, he, be, he it's basically, I, I read it as <clears throat> this incredibly prophetic attack on identity politics before we had a word for identity politics. He, um, the first sentence of the essay is, somewhere or other, Byron makes use of the word longueur and remarks in passing that though in England we happen not to have the word, we have the thing in considerable profusion. In the same way, there is a habit of mind which is now so widespread that it affects our thinking on nearly every subject, but which has not yet been given a name. And then he goes on to say that he gives the word, he gives it the name nationalism, even though he thinks it's the wrong word. And he defines it as the habit, he says, I mean, first of all, the habit of assuming that human beings can be classified like insects and whole blocks of millions or tens of millions of people can be confidently labeled good or bad. But secondly, and this is a much, then this is much more important. I mean, the habit of identifying oneself with a single nation or other unit placing it beyond good and evil and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests, right? And so it's sort of like how we use tribalism today. It's sort of like how we use identity politics. And the thing that I find so fascinating about identity politics, which is why I'd like to talk to someone who defends it, is that people talk about identity politics as if it provides a sense of identity when in reality it's the negation of identity, right? Real identity is to say, I am Jonah Goldberg, I am the father of Lucy, I am the hu husband of Jessica, um, I'm a recovering comic book geek, I'm this, I'm that, I'm all of these things, I'm a pseudo-intellectual demi-Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You can come Ninth up with, level Hayekian. Ninth level Hayekian. You can come up with all sorts of different things that define me specifically, right, that give me actual definition. Identity politics is the erasure, it's the effacement of, of individuality, an individual a definition. It's basically to says that this black person is interchangeable with that black person, even though this black person is a nuclear physicist and that black person is a hip hop artist or whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that that it reduces individuality to loyalty to some abstract category or group. And yet the way people talk about it is they talk about it as if it gives them a huge sense of personal meaning. And I think this is where Mary's absolutely right, is that people are hungry for a sense of personal meaning, and they're just grabbing really bad products off the shelf to provide the sustenance that they need, and they're not getting it from identity politics. Anyway, that's my, my rant about that. And I would also just, one last thing. Identity politics, I will stand by this, is much older. Um, there's that famous line um, by DeMeist, who was the 
Jack Butler of his age. <laughs> a, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But he was this ultramontane Catholic uh, who hated the Enlightenment. And um, there's this famous line which um, – uh, where he says where he's talking about the uh, Universal Declaration of the Declaration of Universal Human Rights and the Constitution, I think, of 1795 in France, and he says, "Now there is no such thing as man in this world. In my life, I have seen Frenchmen, I've seen Italians, Russians, and so on. I even know, thanks to Montesquieu, that one can be Persian. But for, but as for man, I declare I have never encountered him." And this was part of the critique of the Enlightenment back in its early days. And I think that's one of the interesting things is that I, I kind of think we're in another counter-Enlightenment moment. Um, I think that explains a, the, a big chunk of the divide between Amari and French. Um, there is this notion that the Enlightenment failed. That's Patrick Deneen's position. And what uh, while I don't think Patrick Deneen is a practitioner of identity politics, nor do I think necessarily uh, Sorab is, I think a lot of these people who critique the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment project don't realize how easy it is that once you set off on that path to fall back into this pre-political anthropological tendency of falling into identity politics and saying that – what is it they call it? Logocentrism? That just some people think differently than other people and they are not – they may look like humans but they're not – we're not all human beings and – Insert X-Files theme here. <laughs> um and I think that's I, – I, I think, you know, we are in a – I don't think – what was it the um, – was it Zhao Enlai allegedly? And some people think it was just a mistranslation. But he was asked what he thought of the – whether the French Revolution was a success. And this was in like 1973. And he said, too soon to tell. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. That's the that's – the apocryphal right it might be apocryphal but the point is is that uh, in a certain sense the apocryphal version is right in that this inherent tension inside of enlightenment-based societies is always there because human nature is always pushing back against these abstract rules of 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 a free society and that's sort of the point of my book and it's a big point of her book is that we're wired to push back to think differently than what uh liberal democratic capitalism asks us to think about. And if we don't civilize kids starting in the family to think the right way, they'll think the wrong way, which is, in fact, the natural way. Yep. Well, your time is running short. I know, I know. So, but I just, I, I I'm, you know, I, I actually read this book at the last minute and it's in my head and I got all these ideas coming out. And I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I, I wish that we could stay for more. I know, I know you're lying, but. <laughs> um, uh, well, we should at least mention that Mary Eberstadt has a website, maryeberstadt.com. That's E-B-E-R-S-T-A-D-T dot com. Right. Uh, and also, I think this is really funny. This will now be, I assume that this episode will air at some point the week after that we recorded it. In which case, this will make two consecutive weeks in which remnant episodes have appeared in which a uh, hip-hop song is referenced or a rap song of some I, kind. I, I thought it was amazing that Mary Eberstadt, of all people, was the first person to name drop Tupac Shakur. Yeah, the, the song is called Papa's Song. I looked up the lyrics while you two were talking. And it uh -huh. is really, it's like ghostwritten by Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Really? It's, it's quite It's quite a It's quite a statement. And huh. I, I'm just wondering what, do you think we can keep this up? Can we keep, make this a, a bizarre th uh, aspect of the remnant, just dovetailing into... Hip hop on occasion. Yeah, I'm just wondering. You know, I mean, maybe we can get a, uh, um, you know, 
Charles Murray to sing a few lines of White Lines or something like that. <laughs> oh, and you referenced uh, that song by the that by the, the about eating by that New York that your your brother was an extra. Oh, in, all you can eat by the Fat Boys. Yeah, yeah that yeah, wasn't yeah. that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's not consecutive, but it's just very you, random. You're the keeper of the Arcana. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe someday someone will make a remnant playlist of not of the songs that are used as Azure music, but the songs that are just referenced. I, I like it. I like it. I'm um, not doing it. <laughs> someone. <laughs> it's, out, it's out there now. All right. Um, I literally got to move my car before it gets towed. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, subscribe to the G-File at Reagan35X.com. Please spread the word about this podcast. There were some negative reviews at iTunes, which I thought were... You know, I mean, some negative reviews I think are fine because they're just differences, and sometimes I just think they're just downright mean. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, and I figured I just I was, I was subtweeting you. <laughs> um, and say nice things about us on Twitter and get retweeted. And no, you uh, won't. This is a podcast. Oh, premature. Premature. <laughs> I'll <laughs> see you next time. Oh, I, I did it. I can't do it twice. <laughs> I definitely have an R hard out around four because I'm parked on the street out front, so we should get started. Will not let me um, do this. Are you ready? Mm, can, can you could you speak oh, just a into the mic? Three, two, one. That's okay, that's that's good. Am I close enough to it? Yep, yep, you sound you sound fine ready now. Okay. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.